everybody, welcome back to another episode of Dog Backwards, where we like to look at life, faith, and theology a little bit differently. I know we have been on hiatus. Uh, those of you who listen regularly know I only do this when I feel like it, and today I really feel like it, so we're going to do a podcast. I have on here my dear friend. His name is Bobby Cox. Bobby is one of the reasons I ever got into ministry when I was a young man, still on probation from uh, getting slight trouble with the law, uh, offered me a chance to teach a group of kids, and I liked it. And he says, hey, you're good at this. You should try to do it full time. And from then on, I've been in ministry ever since. Uh, Bobby is a missionary. Uh, He was a former missionary in a closed country, and now he um, works. Uh, Bobby, say hi to everybody and tell us a little bit about what you do now. Let's just jump in there. Yeah, so hi, everybody. It's uh, good to be on here. Thanks so much, Caleb, for inviting me, and I think you might give me a little too much credit. I think about today, um, if somebody came today and they were on probation or whatever like hey yeah you can come work with our students we just wouldn't you just can't do that anymore but th- that was a different day then yeah. <laughs> so um yeah so a little bit of my history i was a, i was a student pastor for for 16 years uh and then god called me overseas and so we left and served as missionaries in a closed country where you Legally couldn't be a missionary. You had to have a business platform to to stay there. Did that for five years. And while we were there, we started a a nonprofit organization, which is a missionary training and sending agency um, focused specifically on trying to uh, send missionaries to unreached peoples, places that it's incredibly hard to go. And so today I lead that organization. We have about 24 staff now that work for us and um, working specifically among unreached peoples. So, um, one of the things that I've always admired, and everybody always talks about, oh, I'd like to go to a closed country, I'd like to go do all that, but you, at, at the height of what many people would consider a successful career in ministry, I mean, you were a youth pastor at a very large church that pays very well, and there's a lot of benefits that come with that. I mean, you could have gone anywhere. Instead, you choose to pick up your family and your kids and go to almost literally the middle of nowhere. I mean, it's it's a fairly remote place and uh, for his sake and for those that do ministry there, we're not going to mention the name of the place, which is pretty typical for when somebody is in a closed country. And by closed, that just simply means that the gospel is not allowed, that you're not allowed to share Jesus openly. So you t- you had kids at the time. You still have kids. They were just young at the time. And you picked up your whole family and left the U.S. How did your family deal with that? How, what's what, you know everybody talks about it, but nobody does it, and you did it. Explain that to me a little bit. Yeah, well, let me back up just a little bit and give a little credit to uh, your dad and the impact that he's made on my life. Uh, Doctor Walker Moore wrote a book uh, long before I I met him. And in that book, I can't remember the name of it. It was like a little student ministry book that um, had these components in it. It was uh, it, it focused on the story where um, Philip goes to the Ethiopian eunuch, and in that story, he highlights that Philip was a willing witness, and he defines in that book that a willing witness is someone whose next heartbeat is a heartbeat of obedience. Now, 
I mean, that just, and he goes on and that the Ethiopian in the, in there was, um, a seeking soul. And when a willing witness meets a seeking soul, you have a divine encounter. So anyway, I, I can't even believe I still remember all that, but I think it speaks to how profound that was to me. I wanted to be a willing witness and a willing witness has their next heartbeat as a heartbeat of obedience. So just like Philip, just like God told Philip go, no matter where that was a deserted road or whatever, wherever God told Philip to go, he went. And so here I was, I, I was in a pretty cushy job. I loved my job. And as you said, it was, I guess, in, in some ways, just making an impact where I was. But then when God opened a door and broadened my perspective, the, the issue that I really had to wrestle with, Caleb, was where I was working, there were students that maybe needed my ministry or needed my influence or maybe but there were hundreds of churches they could have gone to. Yeah. When I went to the islands, there were no churches. And so I think anybody who's faced with that situation and feel like God is saying to you, look, you can go back to where you were, where there's hundreds of churches, and you can have impact because it's my kingdom and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use you no matter what. Or... I'm going to show you this pathway here where there's no churches. Would you be willing to walk down that pathway and go to the place that where there's no churches? And would you take my kingdom there? And that was pretty, I'll be honest, it was enticing to me. I wanted, mm -hmm. I wanted to engage in that. And I felt like when God opened my eyes to it, I wanted my next heartbeat to be a heartbeat of obedience. So I answered that call and, and went. So that's part of the, the heart and where it comes from. But in actually doing it, I think also it's mixed up a little bit in my personality. I'm somebody who just takes steps forward. Even if I don't know exactly how it's all going to play out, um, I, I mountain bike, I, I do the skateboard, I do stupid stuff that... You're too old um, to skateboard. <laughs> you're you're going you're gonna to hurt yourself. It takes three months to recover. Her cast is involved. Yeah. I'll worry all about that later. <laughs> yeah. I got a I got a new skateboard for Christmas, so yeah. I'm pretty excited. About I tried it. to show my kids how to skateboard, and it was like you see in TV where the person's feet both go up in the air at the same time, and <laughs> my tailbone hurt for like a month. I was like, all right, I can't show you how to skateboard. I turns out I don't know how to do it. Yeah, yeah. but all that to say, I'm risk is not something that I'm a, I'm afraid of. I I don't risk unnecessarily. But it also doesn't paralyze me like it does some people. So I'm willing to walk forward without fully knowing what what's there, especially if I feel beckoned by God to do that. Then I I just trust him. And it's just it comes easier for me than I think some other people. So I don't think it's something that is credited to me. It's just the gift of faith that I think God has given literally given me. Um, nothing that I earned, and so it's just easy for me to walk in that. Most of the church seems to be risk-adverse, like the way we structure it, the way we plan. Hey, God, we, we take as few as risks as possible, and where we should actually be willing to risk a lot, especially with the people that we minister to or who we accept into the church. If God says, hey, this person would be good for it, but they're on probation, <laughs> you know, maybe you should bring them in. And I think that's why I like church planning or church revitalization. It's a risky 
thing. There's no guarantee that that's going to work. There's no established history. You're starting from scratch. It just seems more fun to take chances. That's what faith is, right? Like faith is more fun than not having faith. Yeah, I totally agree. And as you look, as you look back at God's faithfulness, there's just these defining moments too, where he's been so faithful that it actually pushes you forward in that faith and willingness to risk because it's like, Oh, I I can push him a little bit further. It's kind of like, you know, you've heard the phrase of trying to outgive God and, you just can't you can't do that sort of thing. So when God's been faithful like that, it just makes it even easier. Do you think this was something that benefited your kids being able to see you live this life out this way? Um yeah, I think so and I think I think it was able to we were able to put kind of a microscope on our lives and it wasn't something <clears throat> that just dad did. This was something yeah. that we did. And so in the, in the, all along as the, we were making the decision to go, it was a family decision. And we talked about fully relying on God and being, being all in and trusting him. And there were some, man, there were some definitely some challenging times, um, from whether it was sickness or, being completely isolated. There was a time where we had some other believers that were there and they all got deported and we were the only family left. And so there was some loneliness. Um, yeah, some, some difficult times, even for our kids, uh, some of the persecution that they faced was challenging. It was challenging for me as a, as a dad to be kind of stuck in this middle of like, man, I need to provide for them. I need to care for them. I need to lead them. But the best place for them to be is is right where God wants them. I mean, and allow him to lead them. You get off the plane or boat, however you get there, and for probably the first time in your life, there's like here in Oklahoma, there's a church on every corner, and you're surrounded by Christians, and we don't think anything of it to talk about Jesus or to pray at a restaurant. And now all of a sudden you're the Christian (laughs) and you're not even supposed to say it. Um, What's that first week like of trying to figure out, okay, I'm here, but what do I do? How do I do any of this? Yeah, it's really interesting because uh, it wasn't until about like maybe a month in that somebody called me a church planter. I was in a network meeting and they're like, you're a church planter. Well, I'd never even thought of a church planter. And I was like, what is a church planter? What is that? What is that? What does that mean? And so I think week one was really me learning a lot about what to do because there's no church to go to. There's no Christian radio. There's nothing like that. So it's, it's literally about living out your life in front of people so that they can um, they can see Jesus. And so what that looked like for me was uh, I shared stories a lot. Um, and so I, because I couldn't sit down with someone to do a Bible study, I had to really um, bury God's word in my heart so that when I was just having a conversation with someone, which actually took a while too because of language, but when I was having a, a conversation with someone, that that the story of God's word would just come out in a conversation because that wasn't illegal. I could mm. talk about transformation of my own life 
openly, but to convince someone that Jesus could do that for them, that was, that crossed a few barriers. So yeah, that's what week one was really looking like, okay, how am I going to survive? <laughs> yeah. was, um, you know, getting a place to live and yeah, that's what week one was like. So as you begin to have, like, just build relationships and friendships with people, I imagine it's very, like, natural and fluid. You're just, you're meeting your neighbors, you're going to the grocery store, and you just kind of start to strike up a conversation. At what point do you say, you know, we're having a great day, my God has really blessed me, or something like that, and they're like, well, who's your God? I mean, how, how do you begin to engage in those kind of conversations? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. It is as you are going, just like the Great Commission. It's not like this destination you go, but it's in the every day of your going. Um, and it, I think that's the key is that you engage in those conversations wherever they are. Um, and you try not to package it in a way where it looks Christian. But here's the truth. Um, the truth is that people want to move from a chaotic life to a peaceful life. They want to move away from feeling unloved to being loved. Does that make sense? They want to move yeah. away from being fearful to being bold. People want that transformation. So what I learned how to do in that season was a whole different kind of evangelism than what I did with students for 16 years. But students for 16 years, it was pretty simple. You lay out the, a, a plan of salvation, and people have heard about Christ before, and it was just easy to explain that. Well, when you're restricted and you can't share those things, your typical evangelism, your typical Christian methods of sharing don't work. And the reality is um, when you're in a closed country, you can talk about these things because people still want transformation. They want it. And so it took me a while to learn this. I didn't show up day one learning this, but it, it was, you know, for, for 16 years in student ministry, it was about learn the teen culture and then learn how to inject the gospel inside that culture. Living in the islands was no different. It was learn the culture and then learn how to put the gospel in that. And the way that that came out was in a normal conversation. So let me give you an example of somebody. I had this guy that worked for me in one of the businesses that I started there, and he couldn't uh, he couldn't swim. So he's kind of a unique guy. He On had an island and he can't swim? Was, exactly. And he was a smaller guy, kind of kind of looked down upon by his community, his family. So naturally I hired him. Like he's the guy that I wanted to like show everybody, look what, look what God can do with this guy. So I hired him. And one day he called me um, and he, he and I've had a lot of conversations, but he called me and said, Hey, I can't come over today because the sea is really rough and I can't swim. Well, the Island that I lived on was about 20 minutes away from the Island he lived on and he had to take a boat every day. And so, which by the way, if you don't kind of grasp what it's like to live on an Island, I mean, the island I lived on was about the size of a golf course. So, like, I could stand on my house, look in every direction, and see the ocean. So, we're talking about a little island, not like, you know, Australia or something. So, <laughs> so he took he took a boat over, but he couldn't that day because the sea was really rough, and he was really afraid that um, 
you know, that I was going to fire him. And so when he called me, he's like, Hey, I can't come. I'm really afraid this, the, the sea's rough and I can't swim. And I'm like, Hey dude, it's okay. You don't have to swim. There's a boat that comes every 20 minutes. Just come on over on the boat. And it just went silent. And I was like, Hey man, I'm just kidding. I was just telling you like, you can come tomorrow. Well, it was, the sea was rough the next day. And the next day, I think it's three days later before he could ever come to work. He walked into the office and he's just like panicked because he thinks I'm going to fire him. And I'm like, Hey, let's just talk about this for a little bit. So he begins to talk about his fear. And then he, um, I was, I said, Hey man, I know what it's like to have fear. I said, I personally don't deal with a lot of fear, but my son has, let me tell you a story. So I just started telling my son's story of dealing with fear. And when we first got to the islands, there were these kids that chased him around some rocks. And anyway, it was a whole nother story, but it kind of created this cloud over him that made him immobile, just paralyzed him. Fear just captured him. And then one day this guy told me, there's another guy that was in the United States. He said to me, I was talking to him about my son and my concern about his fear and what could I do as a parent to help him walk through this? And this guy tells me, well, you know what the cure is for fear, don't you? And I'm like, no, what is it? And he goes, perfect love casts out all fear. Your son needs to experience the, the fullness and the true love, that perfect love of Christ that he has. And when he knows that, he'll be able to walk in. So I started praying and talking to my son about this and praying over my son. And, and it probably took about, I don't know, eight weeks, eight to 10 weeks. And I started seeing transformation take place in my son. So just as I'm telling you this story today, I was telling this guy that worked for me the story of exactly what happened. And I said, but if you, and I, and I asked the guy that worked for me, I said, Hey, if you look at my son today, does he look like he's afraid? And he's like, no, not at all, because he didn't look afraid. <laughs> and so there was a story of transformation, and I told him it was the perfect love of Jesus that, that cast out all the fear. As a matter of fact, that didn't just happen in our lives, but one day when Jesus was um, walking on this land, he got in a boat with some of his closest followers, mm -hmm. he pushed off into yeah. the sea, and after for a while, the, the boat started getting tossed around by the waves and the wind, and he, Jesus had fallen asleep in the bottom of the boat, and the guys are standing in the boat going, God, do you not even care that we're going to die here today? And one of them remembered that Jesus was asleep, and they went and woke him up. And Jesus looked at the guys when he woke him, and he goes, where's your faith? And then with two words, he says, be still. And the wind stopped, and the wave stopped, and there was complete peace in the men's heart. And so I told this guy working for him, just like that, I took his story, mm. I weaved in my story, and I wrapped it up with God's story and sent it right back to him. And I said, look, man, you don't have to live in fear because perfect love casts out all fear. I've seen it and I've heard about it and it can be true for you too. So that's kind of what it would look like to talk about a story of transformation without inviting somebody to church to yeah. hear from Pastor Caleb on how to share, how to become a believer. Which really is a lot of what we're kind of supposed to be doing here we've systemized everything and now we have to have evangelism classes with these two circles and he explained here's the circle and then there's a bridge and yeah i can do that to somebody and they go yeah i don't but in the same way that you just talk it's it's stories are powerful it's how we've been communicating throughout all of history here's my story here's your story and 
uh, in fact, I just read that story to my boys last night. It's, it's so interesting that you bring that up about uh, Jesus telling things to be still. And uh, yeah. so after they would hear that, did this individual go, I want that? Or he was like, did they process it and just like come back later? Or were they like, just left it alone and never talked about it again? This This particular guy? We're still talking today about oh, it. Yeah. We still talk over the phone. There were other people that were like, uh, yeah, that's good. How could I have that transformation without Jesus? There would be that kind of conversation. Mm. And I would just go, you can't. And then I would watch people try for it. Mm. And, you know, so there was it was all over the place because the, the, the issue about working among a restricted people, a place where it's closed to the gospel— is that once you go over the barriers, like the normal barrier of communicating the gospel was challenging. I had to learn a language. I have to have to learn how to share it in a way that is relevant to them. Once I do that and communicate that clearly, there's barriers coming back over to, which are, you know, barriers of acceptance to that gospel. So I have a barrier of understanding of communicating and then I have these barriers of acceptance. So like once they hear it and go, I see that. I see it in you, and I want it. But if I accept that truth, it could cost me everything. And so I've seen people risk everything to accept it, and I've seen others completely walk away like the the rich young ruler walked away sad because he couldn't have it, because he couldn't do it. So I, I've, I've seen both, and it's – it's not easy to live in that roller coaster every day. Yeah. I mean, we do that here in the States yeah. as well, but in a, in a closed place where there's no access to the gospel and you feel like you're the only one there sharing it and people turn away sad. I mean, there's not a, not a whole lot you can do other than pray and ask the Holy spirit to, to, to in, invade their lives and soften the heart. I got some missionary friends that are abroad and, in places that are very uh, hostile to the gospel. And I'm always praying for them that depression doesn't sit in because they're like, I'll, I'll share it for months. And not one person is like, oh, tell me more. Like it's just a closed door wherever they go. Um, so it's, it's, I imagine it's got to mean even so much more when somebody's like, that's it. Because now if you were like the, one of the few, if not only Christian on the island, you literally doubled your church size if you get one more person, <laughs> you know? So <laughs> right. I, I get to tell people all the time, hey, our church has doubled during COVID, which it has, which is crazy. Yeah. But to go to from 40 to 80 doesn't seem, I mean, that's a big deal for this area. It's a big deal for this church. Churches around here are closing their doors left and right. Um, and so to go from one to two, you can celebrate that for a long time. How long were you there for? How many years did you spend on the island? Uh, five years. Five years, yeah. How old were your children when you first got there? Yes, yeah, so my son was nine and my daughter was six. That's such an uh, important <laughs> time in their life. I mean, and that's that's, yeah. that's a young age where they're still kind of a, a quite of a handful. Uh, yeah, and but you know, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about in the beginning. There's there's probably a dozen people that could have told me why that wasn't a good idea to go then. That it was formative years for my kids or, or have, do we have enough training or are we really ready for this? But the reality was God just cared for us. 
God took care of us. And today, both of my kids are faithful followers of Christ. And my son works for our ministry. Like Mm. he's, he's a missionary today because he learned how to do that as a kid. And it's not that he didn't have anything else to do, but he was actually chasing a different career when he went to college and graduated from college. And then after that, he just said, dad, I've been praying about that. God would just give me a passion for something because this is not what I got my degree in. I just not, there's no passion there. I want to do something that, that matters. <laughs> so we started praying together and about a month later, he called me and said, Hey, what do you, what would you think if I worked for go 10? And I'm like, I would say that that's God winking at me just saying <laughs> yeah. he cares about me and loves me. And yeah. so, so anyway, that's where we are today. But I think it's, there's a lot of people that could, that would have said it's not the right thing to do. And we could have talked ourselves out of it or pushed, pushed it down the, the road and maybe somebody else would go or a single person or someone without kids or, but no, God wanted us to go, even though it didn't make logical sense to pull your kids out of a, a, a first world education and take them to a third world country where there's no education. So yeah, so it's not, it's not easy, but you know, a willing witness. It's incredible how much resistant though can come from within the church to do something like that. Instead of getting like the full support, like, oh, that's incredible. Yeah. How can we support you in that? I think that's great. We're all like, uh, you know, I don't know if you should do that or not. That sounds awfully risky. I don't, you know, it could be dangerous. Don't you love your children? <laughs> you know, did you get a lot of guilt trip uh, before you left? I don't actually think I got a lot of guilt trip. I got, I think that there was some talk behind my back, mm. <laughs> but nobody was saying it to my face because how do you say, Oh yeah, nobody needs to go share with those people. I think yeah. everybody knew. Yeah, somebody needs to go. I'm glad it's you and not me. I think is what most people were thinking. And as a matter of fact, to just give the church like some credit here is because when you take steps of faith that you feel like God wants you to do, God will come around you and support that. And one of the ways that he did that for us is that we just jumped out there to go, no mission agency to go with, nobody to train us and we had we raised enough money in two months to to go and be there for three years. Wow. Like that's just crazy amount. Mm. And and I had never raised money before, but today I help people all the time raise money to go. And I've watched people take a whole year to raise enough money just to be somewhere for two years. And we raised enough money in two months to go for three years. Wow. It just it was it was God's way of saying, hey, this calling that I have on you, that you're answering, I've got you. I'm mm-hmm. doing it. It's not, it's not anything that you're doing. It's what I'm doing. And so I'm kind of, I do think that there are people in the church that give you that resistance. But I think my experience was the church just believed in it. They're like, we want to be a part of it. We want to go. We want, we want to see this nation reached. Uh, with the gospel and we believe you can do it. So <laughs> it sounds <laughs> like arrogance on my yeah, part. Though. No, it, it sounds like, which is refreshing that you came back without resentment for the American church, the way a lot of missionaries do usually short term missionaries. and They're usually college kids. So let's ascribe that to what, <laughs> what, what it is, but they come back. They're like, the American church is missing out. You don't understand, but it sounds like you come back and you don't have, that resentment? Do you look at the way things are done in the U.S. and does it break your heart or 
do you just see it as it's just another mission field? It's just yeah, it's as uh, I think it was Augustine who said the church is a whore, but she's also my mom. You know, so <laughs> you know it's broken, but you love her anyways. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I do think that there was a bit of a transition because while we were overseas for five years, church was house church. Mm -hmm. So there was no hiding. There was no preaching. There was real discussion, uh, discovery, Bible study kind of church. And then as we mobilized other people, uh, workers, you know, missionaries to come work alongside us, you know, at times we'd have you know, four people in our house. And at times we'd have 15 people in our house, depending on the season of who was mobilized. So, but, so the church there looked very different. I didn't, when I came back to the United States, there was this transition of my preferences of what, how I wanted to do church. I liked that house church model. It fit really well, but as I've been back longer, I've grown a greater appreciation for different models of church. So I think there's room for that house church. There's a need for the house church, but there's also room for this uh, mega church that has this power to just draw in thousands and thousands of people. And the reality is that it is his church. It's not mine. It's not the American church. It's not a mission church. It's Christ church. He's the head of the church, and it doesn't matter really which one it is because God will use all of those. There is. He will use all of them in the ways that he wants to. There's not one right way to do it. And I feel like that's it, it took me some time after coming back to process that and really appreciate how church is done. And not I'm not talking about preferences as much as I'm talking about how the church fulfills its mission yeah. in in everyday life. We got uh, a mega church um, about two miles away from us. It's one, there's, there's a bunch of them, but there's like, it's all branches off from one church. It's kind of like a franchise almost, you know? Um, and yeah. we can be fairly critical of it. And they send, they have over 3000 people that come to their services over a weekend. And when somebody needs food or clothes though, they send them to us, a church of less than a hundred. <laughs> And so I had to go yeah. and say, hey, you keep sending all these people to me, um, but you've got more money and more volunteers than I'll ever have. What are you doing? And I appreciated the response. He said, hey, we feel like we're called to support smaller churches. We're like a big C, there's little C's. And so how much money do you need? We've got the pockets. That's what we do. We fund stuff. So they gave us enough money that our food pantry will be full for the next two years. And so I, I, you're right. You can come back and you can be like, oh, those big mega corporate, those big mega corporate churches, they can fund a lot of stuff that supports all of these little smaller organizations that kind of trickle down. Um, so, I mean, I have my preference of the way I like things too, but I, I get where you're coming from. What did you leave behind what is there that you look back and you're like, man, I can see why God sent me there. Mm. Yeah. I, other than um, just an attachment to a people, mm. um, which is just strange that God can do that, can put that in your heart for a, 
a certain language group or there's certain aspects of their culture that are not redeemed yet that I, I desire for them to be redeemed, restored. So I guess that's probably what's left there is it's not done yet. It's not even close. There's no movement of the church there. It's still just a handful of believers. Some are in prison for their faith. Others have been, you know, persecuted that they left the country. So I think that's what I've left there is that it's just an unfinished task. So you have, are these friends, people that you know that are in prison now for sharing the gospel? Uh, just one guy that I know. What's what's that uh, not sentence? For sharing, not yeah. for sharing the gospel, but just for having the... Uh, just for having the Bible in his local language, that's why he's in prison. Wow. How how long of a sentence is that going to be? Is that a pretty harsh? Yeah, it's pretty much until he recants. Wow. That's a lot to... So, all you got to do is say, hey, I was just kidding, guys, and you're out. How long yeah. has he been in there? Uh, 12, 12 years, 12 it's years. It's a he. It's yeah. 12 years. Wow. 12 years of sitting and probably not the nicest prison in the world. Um, yeah, but there's something about that. You know, we can look at that and go, that's horrible or difficult. But I think that's something else that when you go to a closed country restricted area to do this sort of thing you kind of have to reconcile that in your brain that that no a that might be where god wants you so that was certainly a possibility that i would be the one in prison and then he you also have to reckon with the guys that i'm reaching that could be the destination for them yeah i mean or or death could be part of it and those are things that missionaries have to wrestle with and deal with but this guy's, um, he's not going to recant. And, and because of the season that I had with him, I feel like he, he knows why he's there and he's okay with that. It's not, Hey, feel sorry for me, but I'm going to reach other prisoners while I'm here. So, uh, unfortunately I can't communicate with him at all. So I have no idea yeah. how he's, how he's doing or where he is with that. Yeah, it's not like you can just call him or write a letter. And... Wow. Yeah. And so they, I mean, I can't imagine somebody just taking away my Bible. I love my Bible. I'm yeah. like, how much of it would I remember? How much of it would right. I know if somebody took it away? Right. Mm. I definitely yeah. spent a good part of my time there preparing for that day. Yeah. Um, I didn't want to go to prison, but I thought if God put me there for sharing my faith, then I'm going to be ready um, with my Bible in my heart and my mind. And not just the Bible, but hymns um, mm. and songs. Uh, I wanted to know them because I knew I wouldn't have I wouldn't be able to listen to them on a <laughs> on an iPod or, mm -hmm. or anything like that, that I would have to I would have to just know them. And I'm a horrible singer, but I would just have to know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that would be punishment to the guards that are watching over you. 
Here are you sing Amazing Grace very poorly. I'm going to hit that it's note, done. guys. Just watch. Here it comes. Yeah. <laughs> I'll get it one day. Wow. But um, he didn't. He never. I never. I never went to prison. And I guess that's not where God wanted me. But I do. Our work today still takes us to closed places, restricted areas. And so it is still on my on my mind that who knows, someday I may end up there. So I want to be ready. Yeah. That's it's such a sobering thought. Um, as I sit in my little church office and talk all day long, we're so, I don't want to get political, but we're so angry because we feel like certain evangelicals feel like they lost something. Like, because their guy didn't win an election. I'm like, we haven't lost anything. We haven't lost anything. No one's putting me in jail. The idea that Christians in America are persecuted is um, kind of rich kid problems, right? You know, you took away my Beamer dad. Um, <laughs> when you hear stories like that, you're like, oh, okay, we got it pretty good still. We still got it pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, we definitely do. And we have no idea what the future holds um, for us. But I can say that the church has always grown when it's persecuted. Mm-hmm. So, you know, maybe the maybe the church in America could stand a little more persecution. Yeah. What is something, what characteristic or aspect of God did you really come to learn about while you were there? Is there something that sticks out in your mind? Um, I would say... Num- number one would be his provision um, because I just saw it over and over and over again. Um, some of that came like financial provision for our family to be there, but it, it came in lots of different ways too, because there were other guys trying to get into this country for years and years and years. And I literally did it in two months, both from raising money to starting a business, getting it approved um, how, how my business got approved and what methods. And then the rules changed like a year later and nobody could do it the way that I had done it before. Like there's just so many ways that God's hand was, you know, saying, this is what I want. And maybe, maybe even being more specific, I saw that provision for us, but I always translated that into his relentless pursuit of unreached people. Mm. He is relentlessly pursuing what is already his. And if I can just engage in that in a little bit, then let that be my worship yeah. to him. And so the, the other piece that I felt like I would, would be his sovereignty. Because in the same thing that you were saying earlier, we've had other missionary friends that just send a, a, tend to just share and share and share and no one hears, no one wants to hear. I definitely did that a lot. I've got, I even remember a couple of times of just praying, God, have you just turned your back on these people? How come I can't find one guy who's interested in knowing you? Just one? And I felt like God said to me, hey, if you're the only one, Bobby, who will praise me from this coastland, is that enough for you? Mm. So his sovereignty of him being sovereign, regardless of my plans and aspirations or my strategies or church planting methods or 
evangelism tactics, throw all that out the window and go, is his sovereignty and his, uh, my allegiance to him from that coastline, if I'm the only one, is that enough for the sacrifice that I made of leaving the United States to go live in a third world country? Is it enough just to, and I had to constantly wrestle with his sovereignty and just go, yeah, it's enough. Christ is all. And that's, that's enough. Mm. Man, um, Bobby, I, I appreciate your time. I think we need to kind of remind ourselves uh, of certain aspects of this on a regular basis. And I, I imagine that played a big part in what you do now. And now you kind of train and raise up people to go and do these kind of things. So if people were curious, do you, so you take or help people go on short-term or long-term trips? Yeah, so actually what we do right now is here in the United States, we work with refugees who are coming from unreached nations. Okay. Okay. And so our, the way that we got into that was that we're, um, we were training missionaries to go to unreached places, and we just started training them among internationals right here in the United States. Um, so I would say if somebody's interested in going, hey, how do I go? Where do I go? I'd say hit our website go10.org, look at where we are and come work alongside us. There's five specific people groups that we're working with right here in Phoenix, Arizona that are people groups that are incredibly hard to reach in their own country. But by God's providence, God controls the movements of all people. It's not administrations. It's not kings. God controls the movements of all people. And he has moved some unreached people here to our backyard. And we have the opportunity to reach them. And here's the other part, is that refugees make better missionaries than we do. Mm-hmm. They already know the language, they know yeah. the culture, and they love their people even more than we love them. And so if we can return with refugees back to their home countries, we have an opportunity to go deeper into the culture, build connections that would, that happen in a week's time instead of five years' time. And we're seeing the gospel move in places that, we're incredibly hard to live in. So yeah, how do they get engaged in that? Yeah, we do short-term stuff, uh, short-term trips. Um, and yeah, we would love to uh, mobilize someone to an unreached nation, but we'd really love to reach the people that God's already yeah. sent to us that are right here and turn them into missionaries. How hard was the the language aspect for you? Uh, it was really hard <laughs> because there was no there was no textbook to learn it. Um, we hired this uh, teenage girl that could speak English and uh, we used all my daughter's little dolls and my son's cars and, and we set them all out on the table. And then we told her to tell us to do stuff in the local language. So she would say, um, put the, put the girl on the car. And she would say that in the local language and we'd pick up the little boy and like, no, no, no. And she would tell us, no, that's the wrong one. Yeah. So that's how we learned it by hers, just saying things and telling us to do stuff. So we kind of made our own little lessons and, and uh, kind of acted out things to kind of get some, some basics. But even, you know, here we conjugate uh, verbs, but there they conjugate nouns too. And so like, you might learn what the, what the word is for plate um, and it's different between a plate and the plate. So then you go to the, the cafe and you're listening for the word plate and nobody ever says it because 
they're conjugating it. It sounds different. And so it's just, it was just super, super challenging because there was no class to go to. There was no Rosetta Stone for this obscure. (laughs) So how long did that take? Did that take a couple of years before you were like rolling off the tongue? Yeah, it's, it was uh, definitely uh, a while. As a matter of fact, I think it's still a a work in progress. Mm. Fortunately, um, English was taught in the school. So most of the kids, anyone that was probably 20 or, or younger could speak English. And so we could manage, uh, with, uh, with English and some broken language. Bobby, thanks so much. I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Um, uh, it's good to catch up with you. Thanks for being a, a big mentor to my life and encourage me to, Follow God's heart and wisdom. If you like this podcast, it is sponsored by me because <laughs> ain't nobody paying me. Uh, but you can support me by going to CalebMoore.tv and picking up your copy of The Disappearing Garden, my latest book, out now. Um, Bobby, is there anything that you would like to say in closing? No, other than thank you for uh, inviting me to be a part of this and taking me down the, these memories and, and causing me to think about some of these things. and. I appreciate that more than you know. Nobody I'd rather have on the podcast to start off the new year than you, my friend. It's uh, It's been long overdue to reach out to you. So uh, appreciate you, and we'll see you all next time. <laughs>